from the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. This is In the Blue Corner, the podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. I am David Hazoni, Executive Director of the Israel Innovation Fund. And Adam Scott Bellis, founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund. We have a very special guest today. We're very excited. It's Sarah Tuttle Singer. There we go. I'm happy to be here. Do you remember when we first met? Yes, I do. Okay. It was at the Great Synagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, it was when. Uh, uh, a certain member of Knesset gained his seat and uh, you had just started doing new media for the Times of Israel and you were like the hot thing that everybody wanted to get to know. It was not only like the platform was new and like everybody was blogging and like it was a huge shift of like readership from the Jerusalem Post to the Times of Israel but like you were kind of like the public face of TOI for so, a know, very long time. It was wild west of, yeah. of uh, journalism. Facebook was just sort of it t- taking off in, in bold new ways in journalism, but actually... You know, but Wait, the, we met prior to that? No, we met after that, but the time I really remember meeting you, when we had already met, but this was uh-huh. the time we really spent some time together. Oh, was it was with your dad. At, uh, it was at Shimon Paris. Yeah, 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 it was with your dad. And my father met you, and he, he shook your hand, and you were wearing a blue ascot, and he said, this is the best dress we've had in the entire country. And it's true. It, 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 it was true then, it's true now. Thank Both you, of you, Sarah. And, Thank uh, you. You were so welcoming to him, and so and yeah, he was a nice so guy. Rick. Just, yeah. Yeah. No, he's a great guy. You were kind of like at the face of like giving people an actual voice now in the conversation because that's kind of what TOI was able to do. Well, the blogger platform, which uh, David Horowitz and a guy named Grieg uh, Davidovich came up with this incredible idea of having this marketplace of ideas, the blogger platform, and bringing on all sorts of different people from all across the political spectrum, across the religious, you know, religious identities, and bringing in all these different folks. Uh, Ellie Leshem was the editor, and now Miriam Hirschlag and, and Anne Gordon, and it is, it's an incredible platform, and it has been an adventure to be part of it. It's great. It, it was the beginning of the Times of Israel community. We've now since grown in our readership numbers. We've got lots of people reading and lots of people writing for us in the blogging platform. And also now we've launched the Times of Israel community, which is exciting in its own right. You're quite a controversial figure. You definitely don't fall in the lines of left or right. You, I mean, like you're pretty fluid with your political analysis, your economic views, your social views. I love people. I love people from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And I spent two years living in the old city in each of the four quarters and in each of the different communities and listening to stories, learning when to share my own and learning also when to shut up and and just sit through uncomfortable moments. And it was life-changing. So you say you love people, and I must ask you, why? I mean, aren't they oh, awful? But there's so much potential for good, and even in our awfulness that comes from our own pain. And let's be real, we all at times have the ability and the inclination to be real assholes. And today I was actually the asshole. Um, why were you the asshole today? You know, having an 11 and a half year old is like arguing with this version of yourself, and it's almost like Fight Club, but not, there's no popcorn. And it's, I love people because they're interesting. Fascinating. We are each a universe unto ourselves, and and then when you get to know somebody, you're creating a universe together. Whether that universe exists for a five-minute conversation or for the rest of your lives, I love that, and I love that here, especially. You know, I've been in many cities throughout the world, and New York comes close, and I'm from LA, and so I, you know, I love LA. But in Jerusalem, this is where you have all these incredible separate universes. And when you're able to enter them, or whenever you're able to bring different universes together, yeah, I think it's there's something really holy about that. When did you know that you wanted to write? 
When I was seven, I couldn't spell, but I loved writing stories. My mom was a writer. She was a children's book author, and I always admired what she was doing. And I enjoyed creating my own stories and scenarios in my head. But then many, many years passed, and you know, school will kind of wear that creativity out of you. And I remember, you know, in, in high school especially, I would have these term papers to write every single week. I had a wonderful teacher, Randy Rutschman, taught history and, he ta and politics, European history and, and American history in Los Angeles. And he assigned us these you know, papers once a week. And it was really hard for me to write them. And so my mom would actually be sitting with me and helping me write. And I felt that she was doing most of the work. I was typing a lot of the things and coming up with some of the ideas, but she was showing me how to craft a story in an essay, but it really wasn't until I came to Israel and felt my life go through these, these seismic shifts, going through divorce, raising two kids, having very little community, and trying to find a place here that I began to write. Almost a decade ago. So what was your what was the first piece that you got paid for? I was commissioned to write something by the Jewish Journal. Okay. And Rob Eshman, I think, was the one who asked me to write it. I don't know if he was editor at the time, but he he was in charge, and it, it was wonderful. It was my first foray into Jerusalem. You moved to Israel. You get divorced. You have kids. You have no community. Mm -hmm. You're on your own. You have to like redefine yourself. So, so this is an uplifting story. Mm -hmm. That's a story that many immigrants go through that many people don't understand that you get here, you move here, there were a big group of people and 10 years later, everybody's gone. I don't talk about that. So that you're here three years in, your whole situation's completely different from when you mm -hmm. moved. Tell me how it happened where you're like, all right, I'm coming into my own in Israel. The first piece I wrote for Times of Israel was called my Was that your first writing gig was with Times of I Israel? I was writing for Kfeller Parenting okay. Site and I was writing about my kids and about divorce and navigating the perils and pitfalls of going through all of that. And I wrote a piece about my loneliness in Israel, how I felt disappointed. I'd been to Israel on various summer programs and you're all family on these summer programs and you know it's a curated trip and you've got the free schnitzel, you've got the hot Israeli soldiers, the air-conditioned bus. So it was an experience that I sort of assumed would carry on for the rest of my life when I was living here, and then you come here, and it's a totally different situation. You know, there you have to wait in line at the bank, and let's be real, there are really no lines at the bank except for the first person at the front of the line, and then they'll defend that line like it's the border with Egypt, but everyone else behind, it's like the will to be seen in the Lion King. And you're dealing with bureaucracy, <laughs> you're dealing with, with another, another language, you're dealing with sick kids, you're going through relationship challenges, you know, the marriage ended, I found myself really and truly alone, and light years away from the curated summer trip through the Young Judea programs, which were incredible, but they were also not reality. And so I wrote about that. So I wrote this piece about being lonely and being miserable, and I sent it to Kfeller. They thought it was not quite right, but someone suggested that I try this new site called Times of Israel that uh -huh. had just launched, and I put it up there, and I did not expect the shit show that followed, all the I mean, hundreds of comments, you know, people really didn't like what I wrote because, because it was I true? was so negative. No, I was in a place of real hurting and real loneliness. And people wrote and they said, you know, you're just a whiny Anglo. I think someone coined the term complanglo or something. It, I like that. In hindsight, there was something to it. There, they were right. It was a very negative piece. But from that came a conversation about, okay, so if there's a community here. Bring me in. And so then David Horowitz, an founder of Times of Israel, and Eli Leshem, who was at that time the blog's editor, decided to create a Times of Israel blogger meetup. And they brought all these different folks together, the journalists from Times of Israel, bloggers, people from the community, and suddenly there was a community. And it was incredible. So I started writing, and I ventured out a little out of my new immigrant 
writing and I wrote a piece about my rabbi and my daughter's baby naming ceremony. And that seemed to get some traction and writing just took off from there and learning more and exploring more and falling in love deeper and deeper with this country and with the people in it. So your book, Jerusalem Drawn and Quartered, One Woman's Year in the Heart of the Christian, Muslim, Armenian, and Jewish Quarters of Old Jerusalem, published by... Skyhorse. Yeah, Skyhorse. You know, she mm-hmm. took Armin around the old city. I didn't know that. Yes, uh, the like the title is actually David Horowitz's like title. Like a punishment. Right, David Horowitz is from, from the UK originally. And back in the day in the UK, if you did something wrong and they wanted to kill you, they would hang you. Right. Then they would take a, you know, a sword, a blade, and and cut you in half, and right. they would cut you in the other half, so you were drawn And then they would tie your yeah, limbs horses. to horses, and they would run in other directions. super violent. Which is kind of like <laughs> what living in Israel is like. Exactly, especially in the old city. You've got these four quarters that are extraordinarily distinct. They're connected, and yet there's <coughs> such separation between the communities. And that was one of the I, reasons why I wanted to be living in each of the communities and writing the book, because I saw all these wonderful people in these different communities, but no one was actually talking to one another. And we only would see each other during moments of tension. And just now, you know, about 10 minutes before we started recording, we heard ambulances, and it turns out that there was a terror attack in the old city, and, and, and that happens. And so there are reasons to be afraid, but yet there are overwhelming reasons to get to know one another. Because when you know each other, you're more likely to care about each other and take care of one another and be able to move forward. They, they made this movie in 2013 uh, called Jerusalem the Movie, which was like a National Geographic thing and had drone footage and flying over the old city. But the, the core idea of the movie was following the lives of three teenage girls. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a Jew, a Muslim, and a mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. And the very last scene, they sort of pass each other by, but don't meet up. Exactly. And in, when they first shot the movie, the original shoot of the movie had them meeting up. And then they decide it wasn't real. It's not real. And unless we decide that we want to change it and make it real. And the problem is, it's all well and good when things are peaceful. But when tensions escalate, when there are protests or when there are terror attacks, it's a lot harder to be sitting around and eating hummus together and singing Kumbaya. Because you're afraid and you also have your own histories behind your current experiences. And so it, it's really uncomfortable. But there are people who want to do it. and. One of the things I love doing is finding those people and looking for ways to make connections between them. What was the most painful story? My friend Jessica Steinberg interviewed me about the book and she asked me, why didn't you just stay home? Nothing bad would have happened to you. And it's a fair question because nothing bad would have happened to me if I had stayed home. But so many of the experiences in the old city were beautiful and life-affirming and exciting and adventurous and fun and playful. But yes, there were some really really difficult experiences. Being around the protest during the Temple Mount protests in the summer of 2017, it was a really hot summer, really, really hot, and tensions had escalated. There were two police officers who were shot outside of the of the Temple Mount compound by a terrorist who had stashed weapons on the Temple Mount, and so Israel shut down the Temple Mount, did a weapon search, and then installed video cameras and metal detectors in order to go back onto the Temple Mount, and the Muslim community wasn't having it. They said it violated the status quo, and there were protests, and they boycotted Temple Mount. There was a lot of tension between security forces in Israel and the Muslim-Palestinian East Jerusalem community. And I remember, so I was living in the Jewish quarter at the time, and I went around to Lionsgate to see the protests, and it was very hot out. And I remember seeing all these guys, some of whom I recognized, some of whom I knew 
they weren't close friends, but they were people who were friends of friends, and they knew me and I knew them, and we generally got along. And they were out there protesting and saying, you know, um, you know, with blood and fire will liberate Aqsa. They were reminding the Jews of the Khyber massacre where Muhammad's army came in. These are traditional chants that you'll hear from the Palestinian Muslim community during demonstrations. And it was really upsetting because I saw them, they saw me, I know them, they know me, and it was gut-wrenching. And I also knew it wasn't about me personally, Sarah Tuttle Singer, who lives in the old city and works for Times of Israel and has two kids on a moshav and all of that. I know it wasn't about me and it was about something bigger, but it was still profoundly uncomfortable and gut-wrenching and it made me angry and I thought, you know what, screw it. I don't want to do this anymore. Why am I trying to build bridges when there's so much anger and there's so much hate? But then two days later, I'm walking up Via Della Rosa, which is the, uh, the road that Christians believe Jesus walked on his way to crucifixion. And I hear clanging and I hear banging and I hear the sound of metal on metal and I hear shouting. And most people turn around and run away from that kind of sound, but I was curious and so I ran toward it. And I see all these guys and they're out there smoking and they're sweating and one guy's got an ax and another guy's got a hammer and they're banging on this pipe and they're shouting. And I don't know what's going on, but then I see someone I know sitting to the side and I say to him, what is happening? Why are, why are they doing this? I thought that they were trying to destroy property. And Omar said, Sarah, you won't believe it, but there's a kitten trapped in the pipe. Meanwhile, an assembly of people had gathered around. There was a priest, there was a nun, there was an imam, there was border police sort of standing off to the side looking at us. There were kids from various communities all watching. There were tourists. There was this guy, a pilgrim with a guitar. He was singing something in Spanish about a cat or Jesus, I couldn't tell. And this guy's banging, banging, banging on the pipe. And finally, the pipe breaks and out comes this tiny little kitten. And another man scoops up the kitten and I recognize him. He was one of the guys from the protest just two days before and he's holding this kitten and the kitten is tiny, tiny in his hands and his hands are really big and he's, you know, he's got a cigarette tucked behind his ear and he picks up this kitten and he says, well, we can't just leave it. The kitten will die. His eyes have tears in them and we don't know what to do with the kitten because the kitten is so little that it can't drink. It can't drink water. It can't drink milk. There's no mother cat around. I don't know how the kitten got in the pipe, but somehow the kitten managed to get in the pipe and now we're responsible for the kitten. And so there's this debate. Who's going to take the kitten? And no one can take the kitten. But then I remember that I have a friend named Rachel who loves cats. So I call her to ask what we should do. And she said, oh, you got to call Tova. This is not the Tova I mentioned before. This is another Tova, Tova the cat lady of Jerusalem. She lives in the Jewish quarter and she walks around at night, sets traps to capture all the different stray cats in the old city and she takes them to the vet to have them vaccinated, to have them neutered, spayed, whatever, because just because God said be fruitful and multiply to people, that doesn't mean that the cats need to overrun us. So my friend Rachel gives me her number. I call her up. She answers the phone. She's from Brooklyn, I think, or somewhere on the East Coast. She says, hello. I said, um, hi, I'm calling from, you know, I'm, I'm here on Via Della Rosa in the Muslim quarter and we found a kitten. I don't need your life story. What do you want from me, she says. I said, well, we don't know what to do with the kitten. Well, it's not rocket science, Tova tells me. You, you have to feed the kitten. Kitten's too young, I say, like, we, it won't eat. She says, well, get an eyedropper and feed it every two hours. <laughs> I think to myself, there's a limit to how much I like cats. I said, I just can't do it. And Tova says, fine, I'll take the kitten. And I tell the guys around me, I said, oh, there's a woman in the, in the Jewish quarter who will take the cat. And one of the guys says, oh, Tova, the cat lady. Okay, great. So they know who she is. And so we walk down Via Della Rosa. We cut 
over on Alwad towards the western wall. I'm seeing and some symbolism here. This cat brought about for about five minutes, and I, I hope I'm not horrifying or offending anyone, but it was almost like a glimpse of what the Messianic Age could look like, where you have all these different people from all these different communities walking together, the border police, the kids, the, the nun, the priest, the imam, now a rabbi, the guy with the, with the guitar is now playing something really upbeat and joyful, and we're all walking towards the Jewish quarter, where to this day, as far as I know, God willing, this kitten is still alive and being cared for by this woman in the Jewish quarter. The best part is, okay, so when I tell people this story, they think I'm making it up until, if you spend time with me in the Muslim quarter, inevitably someone comes up to me and says, how's the cat doing? And my response is always the same. You know, God willing, the cat's fine. And if I get asked this question 40 years from now, I will still give the same answer. God willing, the cat is fine because that cat symbolized something. Out of a really horrible experience at the Temple Mount protests, two days later, one of the guys who was saying such vile things had taken this kitten. He was worried about the kitten. And he knows that this kitten is being cared for by a Jewish woman. And the Jewish woman knows that this kitten was rescued by Muslim men. And there is something really special about that. And for the first time in Jerusalem, we really all looked at each other, saw each other, and had a common purpose, and we're celebrating something really good together. And if that can happen once, it can happen twice, it can happen 10 times, it can happen a thousand times. So you grew up in LA. I grew up in LA, Venice we're, Beach. In Venice Beach. Mm -hmm. And then you ended up in Israel. I mean, there was a in Judea thing, there mm -hmm. was a program here and there. But seriously, why? <laughs> why, why, why come from LA? which is so calm and serene and... I mean, boring? Is that what you think <laughs> L.A. is boring? I don't oh. think it's calm and serene either. Uh, yeah. I think, I, 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 think I think it's pretty hot. Yeah, actually, L.A. is no, fantastic. But, LA, no, and L.A. is fantastic. It's a great town. The weather's great. The produce is good, almost as good as Israel. A lot of avocado There's smoothies amazing, and coconut oh, water. Avocado. And amazing food, amazing culture, amazing people. And yet, you are missing something. No, uh, no, 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 I had a wonderful life. The answer is it's multifaceted and multilayered. I had fallen in love with Israel on those first summer programs through Young Judea. So wait, when was your first time that when you When I was 16, here? 1997, and then again in 98, and again in 99. And, no, I didn't want to go the first summer. My mom sat me down and she said, you're going to Israel, and it was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to spend my summer at the mall and wait for Matt Cardenas to pick up the phone and ask me out. But my mom really wanted me to go and she said, Israel is your, it's your family. And it turns out that she was right. It was the first time in my entire life when the pieces of my identity came together. Um, it was the first time I didn't have to explain why I kissed the funny thing on the door, why I don't eat shrimp tempura or pepperoni pizza, why on Friday nights I can't go out with Matt Cardenas were he to ask me out. It was the first time when all these different pieces of what it meant to be a Jew suddenly came into place and I felt at home. And also, you know, let's be real, my mom left out the really important part, which is the, the hot Israeli soldiers. And so at 16, when you're, you know, on, on your own, no curfew except for, you know, your madrichim, your counselors who are only just a few years older, you suddenly feel free and you feel alive. And it was my first time really being on my own in this place where everybody felt like family. And all around me were these people who were passionate, argumentative, interested in life. And I fell in love with them, with the idea of being here. And so eventually I fell in love with an Israeli. We got married, we had two kids. And then he said to me that he wanted to come and live here in Israel. And you know, you would think that I would have been happy about that, 
But it was actually then, just like at 16 when I didn't want to go, at 29 I didn't want to come here either because I had a life that I really liked in LA. Friday night dinners with my family, watching paint dry on the walls, nothing. I mean, watching Friends reruns and Seinfeld reruns with two kids. I was a stay-at-home mom. I had been a preschool teacher. I wanted somehow to be involved in you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and mediation, and that's what I had studied at university, but I wasn't doing that. I didn't know how to do that. I knew how to have two kids who were under two years old and be in LA and cook a Friday night dinner. But the man who's now my ex-husband really wanted to go back. He said he wanted to live on a kibbutz and raise our kids on a kibbutz. It would be paradise for them. It was a great place to raise um, children and dogs and to grow old and said I'd try. But it was a disaster in the beginning because again, you know, as I as mentioned before, it's one thing to be on this curated trip and it's one thing to be 16 and discovering yourself in a country and it's another thing to be 29 years old and dealing with two kids who were getting sick all the time with all the new viruses and bacteria in a country and negotiating bureaucracy and also you know going through the difficulties of a struggling marriage and you know within a few months our marriage imploded and then I was faced with this dilemma do I go back to LA do I go back to my family to our um, to trips to coffee bean and, and Friday night dinners or do I suck it up and make it work and so I chose option B. Why? I'm stubborn. You're, you're My mom was stubborn when she made me go to Israel, and I'm stubborn too. And I remembered underneath all the difficulties that there was this love there. And so every day that love got a little bit brighter until one morning I woke up and realized, oh my God, I'm still in love with this place. And then that was it. I think in order to survive here, you have to be a little bit cynical, and you also have to be an optimist. And I think those are two characteristics that I... Are those two different things, or are they just the same thing in a different... They're I mean, not mutually exclusive, that's for sure. What I mean is sometimes I wonder whether the reason that Israelis are so negative is because deep down inside they believe that that's the key to making things better. Maybe. Through the criticism. Maybe. I, I haven't ever thought about it that way, but that makes sense. I mean, but it's the only way that you improve. Before moving here, I would never criticize the country and government, anything. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, after moving here, <laughs> it's like, a, right. you I mean, can't, like, you can't, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's an obligation. It's an, yeah, it's because it's an internal discussion. You're not having an internal discussion and on the outside. You're having an internal I, discussion about your own And I think Israelis see it as a form of taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. Okay, they, they don't just dismiss it. They don't cut themselves off from it. It's probably why there's more respect between the polar sides here, between left and right. I mean, like at the end of the day, we're all living under rocket fire. When we hear that ambulance, we don't know who was injured. If it's someone we know, and there is that shared bond that, would, however we vote, we have to live with the consequences of that election. The yeah. policies that are shaped, that we want shaped or don't want shaped, affect all of us. And this is such a small country. It's it's like a fingernail on the map. And what is it? The si it's the size of New Jersey, right? It's tiny. And there aren't that many of us. And we all know somebody who was either killed in a terror attack or in a war or someone who was injured or we ourselves may have been injured. And to some extent, we're all dealing with the post-traumatic stress that comes from that. And I think it's one of the reasons why we tend to buy that extra cup of coffee and we tend to stay out later and go out with our friends and seize life in a 
in a different way because there is that. Um, and then we live for the now. In, in, right, there's a sense of vulnerability too, but we don't hide from it. We rush toward it with our arms wide open. And that's something I love about this place. So would you say the, the biggest change in your personality has been to live more for the moment since being here? That's definitely been part of it. I'm a worrier by nature, and I'm someone who always measure life in what could go wrong, what if this happens, what if that happens, instead of what could possibly go right, what could possibly be exciting. And being here has helped me shift my focus to that and to look for potential any way that I can. And I see that with Israelis all over, across the spectrum. We are constantly in negotiations with ourselves about what our identity means, and we are building and we are creating and innovating just as the two of you are doing and the people who work with you. It's wonderful. You take the raw materials and you grow something really special out of it. So what's your, so what's your next book, Sarah? Honestly. I, I'm open to suggestion. Thank you. And when I sort of woke up and realized that stories are actually much more important arguments in the long run about who human beings end up being, yours was one of the first kind of consistent storytelling voices about Israel that, that I focused on. Thank and you. I kept, thank you. But there are, it's in the stories that I feel like there's so much the most ignorance about Israel. I feel like everyone knows all the arguments, but nobody knows anything about what it's like to be Israeli and to live mm -hmm. that life. And it's only through story that sort of the truth about who we are can really come out. Don't I you agree. Think? I, that's one of the reasons I like going into other communities where I may feel a little less comfortable in the beginning and hearing those stories and sharing them too. Creating doors and windows into other worlds that we can get a better sense of who's behind them and the potential for connection, even for friendship. Wait, let me ask you a question. How long have you been here now? Since 2010, so it'll, 11 years? It'll be 10 years in October. It's we're in 2020 now. No. Oh yeah, we're in 2020. I was nine years mm -hmm. yesterday. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, I appreciate Muscle it. Time. Thank you. Uh, for you, like specifically, what was that moment? And it probably wasn't in Israel, it was probably outside of Israel, but what was that moment where you were like, fuck this, I'm no longer an American? You know, or like, I'm not, or not necessarily I'm no longer American, but I'm officially like an expat. I'm not an American as like a product of the mainland. I'm not full-blown Sabra Israeli, but like I feel more Israeli when I leave. I feel more American when I'm in the country. I wrestle with know, that all the time. Was, that, was there ever like a moment where you were like, I'm not who I used to be? Like, like my identity has changed. Every day is I'm not who I used to be. No, <laughs> obviously, like no. Every day, is a, every day is a work in but progress. There, but there like, was no pivotal moment. There have been moments where you sometimes when I'm angry, I'll respond immediately in Hebrew. It's like, oh, that's new, that's exciting. Or I remember once flying out of Switzerland and trying to decide which passport do I use and then choosing to use the Israeli passport. It's like, all right, that's who I am. Flying through Europe, I'm an Israeli. Like it or not, I don't care. But also, I remember listening to people that I know worrying about the price of, of coconut water or, or quinoa salad. Well, I'm hearing on the news, it, people in LA or in San Francisco, and then hearing on the news that um, you know, there was a, a terror attack, and thinking how different the worlds are. You know, I lived in the Bay Area for a number of years, and so a lot of my friends still live in San Francisco and Berkeley and Oakland. Sarah, so, final thoughts. Next time you're in Jerusalem, let me know, and if you want to go visit different parts of the old city, I'm happy to hang out. And what about the new city? New city, too. I love the Shuk. Um, I have my favorite hangouts. Great Scotch Bar, Glen Bar over on Shalom Sion. It's okay. uh, 
got 500 different kinds of scotch. It's right across the street from a taco place that's good too, kosher tacos. Tacos Luis. Yeah, kosher Mexican food. Glen Bar? Glen Bar. And uh, I mean, what I love doing is talking to folks, and I hope others will do the same. Put yourself out of your comfort zone if you can, when it's safe, when it feels like the right thing to do, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Well, this has been a wonderful this episode of, Thank of you. In the Blue Corner. That's right. In the Blue Corner, uh, the podcast of the Israel Elevation Fund. I'm Adam Scott Bellows. I'm David Hazoni, and we are delighted to have hosted Sarah Tuttle. Thank Singer. you so much for Thank you. Me. We were so thrilled to have you. Thank you. Okay, and we're, we're, we're done. And we're out. We're out. <laughs>